our busy old day on Radio 1. Plenty to hear. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and this is what you might have missed. There were 221 patients in the hospital. Uh, Out of those 41 remain, people were transferred from Waterford through the Dublin hospital to Kenny, up into the northeast, even into Navin. So all of our hospitals responded really positively to the crisis that hit us yesterday in Wexford. So we had a a really terrible and and frightening accident in Bushy uh, at the weekend with my little six-year-old. Out of nowhere, an e-scooter came and and hit him at speed. Spokesperson said the Labour Party was founded by James Connolly. The Social Democrats were founded by Stephen Donnelly. Look, I'd rather have be in a party that has abandoned Stephen Donnelly than a party that's abandoned the principles of James Connolly. And we'll start in the morning and the latest from novelist Liz Nugent. She popped into studio on World Book Day to talk to Ryan Tuberty about strange Sally Diamond. This book is dark as hell uh, and with lovely touches of comedy in it. Um, uh, uh, it uh, I just need you to, t- to give us the, the blurb of it before <sighs> we get stuck in. Is that the most horrible yeah, question you can well, be asked? Well, the, the elevator pitch is kind of tricky because it's... Um, yes, it is tricky. Because it, it's hard to say anything without giving spoilers. But let's just say it's about a very atypical woman in her 40s who, at the beginning of the book puts her father, her dead father, out with the bins because that's what he said. When I die, put me out with the bins. That's the first line. That's the first line. Yeah. So she does that and then, of course, comes to the attention of her community and then the guards. And then it is revealed that she has a very dark past, which she doesn't remember. Her adoptive father was a psychiatrist. And in, he has left letters for her, including his funeral instructions, yeah. which he didn't read. But um, he has left uh, letters for her. And there are also tapes that she comes across of, um, of her father interviewing her birth mother, uh, who would have been a patient of his. So You're being very careful. I have to be so careful yeah. about this book. But she is, it's the first time I've written a likable character. Yeah, is you know? it, yeah I suppose it is actually. Yeah, yeah, just yeah. I really, lo- she's, she's really lovely. And I, I tried to treat her and her differences with as much compassion as I could because, you know, I just, I, I kind of fell in love with the character as I was writing her. She, you know, she, she's, she's had such a damaged past. And again, yeah. being, can we say abduction? Yeah, we can say abduction. Okay, so, yeah. so it involves abduction and incarceration. And yeah. you can probably say N- Natasha Kampuch and uh, sort of Something style like that. Yeah. in terms of uh, emerging from that. And Although I don't ever go into, like if we're talking about room, for example. Yeah. I don't ever go into the room. Like we don't, there's nothing graphic described in the book. It's only as disturbing as the reader's imagination. Well, then my imagination <laughs> needs to be locked up because <laughs> I went dark uh, yeah. with this. Yeah. Uh, t- tell us about the the genesis of it uh, because well, it's. I find it. I find it very unlike anything you've written before. Like I felt it was a different part of your brain at work here. Well, maybe um, as usual, I make it up as I go along. Oh, but, okay. Um, it's your fault, actually, because you told me, you told me yeah. the last time I was in here, or maybe the time before, to read The Collector John by Files. John Files. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I did that. And that gave me an inspiration for a certain part of the book, the, the abduction case. And um, it's quite a disturbing the book. Other, the other book that was a huge inspiration, well, character from the book, was Boo Radley in To Kill a Mockingbird. Because I was always fascinated by Boo Radley. He was this kind of. Um, 
recluse. He never came out of the house. Like the kids, Scout and Jem or, and Dill are always trying to taunt him or get him yeah. out of the house. And yet he leaves little gifts yeah. for them in the hollow of a tree. He was terrifying and, and, was, and beautiful. Yeah. yeah. And I was kind of wondering what, you know, like, what is the story of Boo Radley? And there's a couple of little hints that Harper Lee puts in the book about how she stabbed, he stabbed his father when he was a boy. And that was why he was kept away. But even after his father dies, he, 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 his father locked him up mm-hmm. in the house. But then even when the father dies, he still doesn't come out of the house. He's still, he's so locked in there. And I just thought I wanted to write a modern day female Boo Radley. And that's, that was kind of my starting point. You've a sort of a, a posh, psychopathic protagonist in there as well, the dentist. Oh, yes. Uh, uh, sorry, dentists. Sorry, dentists around <laughs> our, uh, South, South Dublin. But you have, uh, and I like that because so often the villain is so obviously a villain, uh, whereas most villains are hiding in plain sight. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And you tap into that. Yeah, I, th- I think that's the same with Oliver and Unraveling Oliver Definitely. and and possibly Lydia and Lying White. Yeah, I do write sort of these middle class you know, horrors. <laughs> you know, yeah, exactly. Because, uh, yeah, I haven't offended anybody in the book. I had lots of sensitivity readers except psychopaths. And Ryan asked Liz about this modern phenomenon of the sensitivity reader. Let me ask you about that, uh, sensitivity readers. Did you actually give your book to sensitivity readers? I did. Like more than one? You said, you said plural. Yeah, uh, I think four or five. Yeah, um, I, just, just to make sure, because there are issues and... Um, you know, so there was a, a black sensitivity reader, lesbian sensitivity reader, a psychiatrist, because I didn't want to offend all psychiatrists. Yeah. Um, a Maori sensitivity reader. The part of the book moves to New Zealand. Um, I can't remember the others. Yeah, so, so you know, it was just... it, And I think... I know you were talking about cancel culture and all that, but I think um, sensitivity reading kind of gets a bad press. It's I see it more like responsible research. You know, you just want to write a book in such a way that it is not going to offend any of your readers. I, I, do you know what? You I know? understand that. I'm not. I'm yeah. not going to have a go at, at sensitivity readers. Yeah. To be honest with you, because the way you're describing it, it makes it does make sense. But let me ask you a couple of things on that. One yeah. is, did did you find when they came back that it 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 upset you in terms of editorial of your book, or did you find yourself in constant agreement with the suggestions made? Pretty much constant agreement. Great. Like they pointed out things that. I was blind to my unconscious bias. You know what I mean? And there was only actually one okay. thing. There was only one small part of one scene that I was asked to change. That's it? Yeah. And that was no part, that was like really easy to change. And so, yeah, it, it wasn't a problem. I, I actually had kind of passed the test before they <laughs> before so they got same. their hands in the book. But yeah. the sensitivity readers, I think the problem for some people, and I probably count myself yeah. among them, is when they start dipping into previously published books and yeah. with, with wholesale changes. That's what would bother me about the Dal thing. I can take a word here and a, an offensive point there, but when they're going and putting paragraphs and, and changes like that, and to me, that's not the, the author's book anymore. I guess so. I guess so. Um, I reread To Kill a Mockingbird just recently, like in the past couple of weeks, and I did think, oh my God, I don't think I'd like my black friends to read this book. Yeah. Because there, there are some lines in it and there are some generalisations made, even by Atticus, who's the hero and the, the most the most non-racist character in the book. Um, uh, yeah, there are some things that I would just be 
uncomfortable with with 2023 eyes. Yeah, yeah totally. You know I mean? But at the that. same time, it's a book of its time. It's set in the late 30s, I think, just before. Yeah, it's set in the late 30s. So it was of its time and I'm not suggesting it be rewritten or anything like that. But just, you know, I think... But I think it's maybe it's like those TV yeah. programs now. Shouldn't some books should have a sticker to say, by the way, if you're sensitive to the following, this book is like a health warning. Oh, I wouldn't like that now because there might be no room for the title of my book. If you, Strange if Sally you. Diamond. It'd just be called <laughs> Sally. Offensive to jewellers and odd people. So you've got to watch that. Um, let me ask you a few other things about your book as well because you mentioned um, The Collector. You mentioned... To Kill a Mockingbird, two magnificent books. Uh, anything else uh, swirling around your brain well, in the writing of? Um, uh, other books? Yeah, or, or um, movies or life experiences. Well, I'll tell you that other people have uh, mentioned Eleanor Oliphant yes. and have mentioned Room. And obviously, yeah, I read those books and I loved them, but I didn't, they weren't, they weren't the inspiration, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, Sally is just... I think, I I don't think I've read a character quite like Sally before. Yeah. And I certainly haven't, you know, I, I, this is a character I have never dug so deep to actually find a character as I did with Sally. Mm. You know, a really, and I had extra time to write this book because of various scheduling things. Um, that It's three years since my last book was published. Mm. So I had extra time and it allowed me that, space to actually go deeper with the characters, you know. And um, there's another narrative that comes into the book about third of the way through. Um, another character in New Zealand who has more of a grasp on Sally's childhood than she does herself. I wish so, we could say more. I mean, I we, we can have a conversation when we're off air because, but as you say, it's just so difficult to sell this book in a sense that you, uh, as a story, because from the get-go, there's twists and there are twists and turns yeah. that really could wreck it for somebody. Yeah, there's total swerves. Yeah, They're total just going to have to take our, uh, my word for it. You can't say it because it's, it's it's your baby, but take my word for it, please. The, you, you will not be disappointed by this book and all those swerves, it, it takes you it takes you all the way along and no, really, it's so engaging. Liz Nugent talking about her book Strange Sally Diamond from the Ryan Tuberty Show. And in the morning, after an evacuation of Wexford General Hospital, Anya Lawler was looking at the situation after the fire. And HSC Chief Operations Manager Damien McCallion, good morning to you. Good morning, Anya. You've had a busy night. Fill us in on the latest about Wexford General Hospital and the evacuation that's been going on. Yeah, so in the first instance, I might just acknowledge the work of our staff in Wexford and the surrounding areas, our ambulance service and all the hospitals indeed who responded from right along the eastern seaboard, southern seaboard and northeastern area. And in addition, our partners in the emergency services who we work with in these emergencies, local authorities, fire service, guards and indeed some of our private partners, private ambulances who also assisted. The position this morning is we stood up our crisis management team yesterday and all our hospitals would have a crisis management team and a plan to respond to these type of events. And that was activated yesterday afternoon. And the team there have been working, as you said, right through the night. There were 221 patients in the hospital. Uh, Of those, 41 remain in a safe area overnight. And we do anticipate now, although final decisions will be made this morning, it may be possible to retain those patients, which will obviously be helpful for them and their families. The balance of the patients then were either transferred or discharged. We're very conscious of people's concerns. And I heard some family members 
on your pieces earlier this morning for their own loved ones who are in hospital. And there is a helpline stood up in case people have any concerns about where the family member has gone to, how they're contacting and so on. And I might just give that number. It's 053-915-3012. And that's our sort of prime focus yesterday and today is both patients and their families in the hospital and indeed our own staff. In terms of services in Wexford then, our elective and outpatient are cancelled for tomorrow and Friday and all urgent and emergency care would be taken in other hospitals. So if people have an emergency need, they do need to go to another hospital. Wexford Emergency Department will not be open over the coming days. We will make decisions today, and the team are working this morning and last night in relation to that technical assessment that will guide, I suppose, how we can reopen parts of the hospital and start to get the hospital back into operation. And that process was started almost in parallel yesterday with the emergency response, and we're working with our own partners on that to try and establish as quickly as possible how we can get some services back up and running in, in the hospital for the community that are down there. It's clearly a major concern and anxiety. A hospital is a huge part of the fabric of a local community and a very important part of the service. So we want to get things back as quickly right. as possible, but we must do so safely. If somebody's baby is due and they had been attending Wexford General, where do they go now? Yes, yeah, so maternity services will be one of our priorities for restoration, but in the intervening period, arrangements have been put in place with the hospital in Waterford, University Hospital Waterford, for maternity services. And what about staff? Because, you know, we were hearing staff who were due to be on duty in the hospital last night, some of them nurses, they ended up bringing patients to Navin. Uh, however long the hospital is going to be closed for, it's no easy matter to redeploy staff, is it? No, and the staff have responded fantastically, both in the initial response. You can only imagine how harrowing it was to see part of the hospital in flames. Uh, they responded really well right through the crisis response yesterday, the evacuation, supporting patients and families. So some staff remain in the hospital, other staff transferred with patients, uh, and we'll assess that over the coming days. Obviously, supports will start to be put in place for staff mm-hmm. from today also by the crisis management team down there, because, again, you can only imagine look, for those that have to experience it on the ground, particularly when they're caring for people who are vulnerable and all of the risks that that go with that. So certainly staff will be supported by the hospital management over the coming days. But in addition, as I say, some staff will continue to operate in the hospital, other staff transferred. And our priority then is to try and look at restoration of services as quickly as possible. And the team are working on that even this morning as we speak. What about the medical records of those transferred? Because we know we don't have this, you know, interlinked uh, computer system where patients' records can be picked up automatically. So what happened there? Yeah, so those are all the practical challenges that come with an event like this, Anya. And essentially, I suppose, per possible, uh, records will be transferred. Clearly, there are issues, and that's one of our concerns, to manage that in terms of keeping contact between Wexford Hospital, where people have been cared for, and the many hospitals that people have gone to. And as I say, people were transferred from Waterford through the Dublin hospitals, Kilkenny, up into the northeast, even into Navin. So all mm. of our hospitals responded really positively to the crisis that hit us yesterday in Wexford. The HSC's Damien McCallion there. Then Mary Wilson spoke to Minister for Health Stephen Donnelly in Wexford. Minister Stephen Donnelly is in Wexford. He is here with us now at our outside broadcast in the Maldron Hotel. And Minister, good morning. Thank good morning, you for Mary. joining us. As Anya was saying with Damien McCallion there, this could have been so much worse. Now, you visited the hospital this morning. Who did you see and what did you see? So I've just come from the hospital and I, we walked around as myself, the hospital manager and the clinical director. And 
Can I just join Damien, first of all, Mary, in thanking everyone involved in the response. What we saw was an extraordinary response, both from our emergency services, from our Gardaí, from our ambulance crews, from the fire brigade, and also from the rest of the healthcare system. So right through the night, we saw patients being brought to Waterford, to Kilkenny, uh, to CHI in Dublin, uh, and to other hospitals around. The entire healthcare service responded. <clears throat> we had the ambulance service with, they have uh, the ability now to transport people in specialised critical care ambulances. All of that was deployed. And one of the things that the, the management said to me this morning was that the response from their staff, mm. from their teams, the response from the emergency to, uh, services, the guards, the fire brigade, the ambulance crews was absolutely uh, extraordinary. And I just want to, from my behalf and on behalf of government, just acknowledge and thank everybody um, most importantly, nobody. Uh, there were no casualties, there were no fatalities, and it would appear, certainly, the information we have now is that no one was injured. None of our staff were injured, patients, their families were not injured, which is a, a testament to the staff in Waterford, to the emergency services, and to the preparations, obviously, as Damien has said, mm. in terms of um, preparing for these events, which you, uh, which you never want to happen. Within the hospital, there are areas which appear to have suffered some significant damage, obviously, on the fourth floor of the area affected. There is smoke damage, there is mm. water damage. And, and crucially, this plant room, I think, where, where a lot of key equipment is housed. There's a the plant room, and then, for example, there are pipes on the way mm. to the critical care unit, which may have been cracked, and so all of that has to be, uh, has to be looked at. In terms of the parts of the hospital that are affected, obviously we'll have to wait now for the experts to, to, to say how, how extensive the damage is. Um, but the, the areas affected are substantial. The maternity areas, a lot of the inpatient beds, so the, the area includes over half the inpatient beds in the, in the hospital, endoscopy, um, critical care, uh, and other areas. The areas that were not affected include uh, emergency, the emergency department, some of the diagnostics, some of the some some of the mm -hmm. uh, the day case. But certainly, there is a large part of the hospital which, to a greater or lesser extent, has been uh, has been directly affected. So by knocked this. out of action, and from what you're saying, knocked out of action for perhaps um, some considerable time. The hospital, they're already talking about the services that they can get back up and running as quickly as possible. Mm. Um, but there are areas, yes, there's no, there's no question. Uh, certainly in terms of inpatient beds, uh, there's no question, but that some of that is going to take uh, time to, to, to put back together. What, we'll, what yeah. we'll need to understand in terms of damage, damage to the mechanical systems, the electrical systems, and then any questions, of course, around the structural integrity of any, the floors. You know, mm. are we going to have to engage in some major rebuilding? We'll, we'll need to wait and see what the report says. Minister, can you reopen an emergency department if you don't have the capacity to transfer emergency patients to critical care beds and to wards? No, you couldn't. An emergency department obviously needs a, a lot of hospital support behind it. You have to have access to theatres, to diagnostics, sure. to inpatient beds, to day case beds. A, a maternity ward could care. not be reopened without access to, to critical care beds you, in case of emergencies. You, you need access, you know, the, the various services in the, in, in the hospitals obviously need access to the, 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 the more acute services behind them, as, uh, as you say. So that's exactly what the team is, is looking at now. So there are five critical care beds in Wexford. Uh, they're in the same block uh, where the fire was, though quite a bit removed from it. 
And so they'll be looking at, you know, connections in terms of gases and electrics and so forth. So really, we'll need to we'll need to wait and see what the, the, the damage assessment is. Certainly, the, the, the team in the hospital are now asking the, the mm. questions, what services can be put back in place as quickly as possible for the people of mm. Wexford? Minister for Health Stephen Donnelly from Morning Ireland with Mary Wilson. And on the Radar Sea Show, saving over €20,000 on a wedding. Budget bride Maddie Murphy was telling all to Ray. Now, the wedding industry is booming at the moment with experts revealing that the average cost of an Irish wedding is now reaching close to €32,000. You heard me right, €32,000. But one Kerry woman didn't let this stop her from celebrating her big day by using some simple cost-cutting steps. She managed to slash her wedding costs by over €26,000. She joins me now. To share some of them with you, Maddie Murphy, how are you? Hi, Ray, it's great to be on. Good to talk to you. Uh, and you. <laughs> so you're, you're, you're home now in Kerry? I am. I am home in Kerry, yeah. We just moved home from London there, so right. home now. Uh, yeah. And where are you heading to? We're actually heading to Dubai in a couple of days. Okay. When, yeah. did, when did you get married? We got married in December 21. Okay. And why yeah. are you only letting people know about how much you save now? Our, uh, I was kind of gatekeeping, I suppose, but look. Um, gatekeeping, all right. Yeah, right, gatekeeping, right, yeah. Um, right, okay. But I said, look, I kind of all tatted it up and I decided, Jesus, I actually did save a load. Yeah. So that's why I'm kind of coming out with it now. Yeah, and, and you work in marketing, so you're used to sort of project management, are you? Yeah, I yeah, am. Yeah. I, I'm, a, I'm a fond of an Excel sheet, I'm not yeah, going to lie. Right, and, <laughs> and that, was a, that was a huge part of your planning, was it, this Excel sheet? It was actually, yeah. I had honestly nearly every supplier in the country on this Excel sheet and right. exactly what they had. And I think that was one of the main reasons that I saved so much. Like I got so many quotes, you know. And was it a good day? Always the best day. Best who'd, day of our lives. Who'd yeah. you marry? I married uh, <laughs> Dean Murphy. Right. <laughs> yeah, he's from Waterville. He's from about 20 minutes where I live and we went to secondary school together. And were you dating in secondary school? No, we weren't. He must have always fancied me, Ray, but, you know. <laughs> Has he admitted that or is that the way you saw it? No, I just, I think, I feel that. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and what, he, he was too shy or what happened? Oh, he must have been too shy. Or maybe I was intimidating. I don't know, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, right, so, so COVID had its part to play in a good chunk of the savings. Yeah, it right. did. So when you set out to... Uh, do the old guest list which is politically fraught isn't it? Oh my god but like we have such a habit in Ireland of having these massive weddings which you know have your mother's auntie's goldfish in them (laughs) you know (laughs) so like we we had when we tatted it up uh, after many an argument we had about 300 more 350 people and it's just mad. It is mad. Do you know? Because I'm, what's the population of Valencia? You're from Valencia. <laughs> it must have been the whole island. <laughs> yes, yeah, it was the whole island. But it, And well, all the Waterford then on top of it. Yeah. Exactly, like, yeah. 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 Um, well, Dean has a massive family and I have thankfully have a small or it would have been about 600 right. if I had a big family as well. Okay, so, um, so you were looking at 300 people and, we and, and you got that, it was 87 euro per head. So what's the maths on that? Something crazy. It was over like 30 grand, re- right. re- realistically. Yes. Um, but we decided then we actually couldn't afford it. Like you're trying to save for a house, mm. you know, a mortgage. It's just not realistic anymore to have these massive weddings. Well, you see, back in, in the day, opinion. back in the day, 
you know, the bride's family would have stepped in and paid for it. Yeah. That was the tradition, but that, that rarely happens now, I'd say. Not anymore. We knew we were paying for a, a lot of it. You know, families yeah. did, did help out, but we were paying for a lot of it ourselves yeah. and we just didn't have it. We're young, you know. Um, yeah, and uh, like a house really should take precedence over. I'm exactly. Not, shouldn't it, really? Yeah. Yeah, it should. Yeah. Okay. So so with COVID, you weren't allowed to have 300. So you had a good excuse to say to the, <laughs> exactly. your aunties and goldfish. <laughs> it doesn't, doesn't matter. They have only three second memory anyway. They're not, they're not holding exactly. the grudge against you. Yeah. So, so they were gone, right? They were gone. That was because you had to cut it down to 100. So that, that's a we good did. saving, isn't it? Yeah. Honestly, it was, it was great, to be honest. It's, it's, it actually saved us so much money just for, because the guest list itself will, you know, cost yeah. you the most yeah. out of everything. Mm. And 100, that's still a good, a good chunk of people. It's enough it is. for an atmosphere, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It is. Oh yeah, it was lovely and it was more intimate and it was, you could actually get around to everyone on the day. <laughs> Maddie Murphy on The Ray Darcy Show. And on today with Claire Byrne, new leader of the Social Democrats, Holly Kearns. Congratulations on your, your new role. You've come a long way from somebody who won a council seat in Cork by just a single vote. You got elected then in uh, 2020 in the general election. And now you're the leader of a political party in the Dáil. Why did you want the job? I decided to go for it and give it my absolute everything because I think that this is the moment in Irish politics where the tide is turning. And I think we can all feel that. And... What I learnt in that, you know, like you said, I started off in the local elections by one vote for one. I learned the importance of every single vote. <laughs> um, but also that oftentimes when Irish people are presented with a more progressive alternative to vote for, they'll very likely take that mm-hmm. opportunity. And I saw that with marriage equality, with repeal. And I really felt it when I was knocking on doors that people wanted a more progressive change instead of always being kind of dragged, a government that's always dragged along by the people that we could finally have a government that would lead that kind of a change. And what about the elder lemons who would say, never mind youth, what you need here is experience? Experience is so important. And I just think we need to start asking ourselves, what kind of experience do we want? Because just over a decade ago, you know, some of the most experienced politicians in the country bankrupted it. And I know that people are saying that, you know, four years in politics and absolutely. And I've, I've learned a lot in those four years, but I also have experience of growing up on a small dairy farm of waitressing through school and college, of working in disability support services. I have a master's in science and I think we need to bring different experiences to politics and I think that they're very valuable and helpful in terms of policy making, in terms of understanding what people are feeling on the ground, mm-hmm. you know. Um, did you expect there to be competition for the role? Because it seemed as though nobody else wanted the job when Catherine and Roisin decided to, to leave as leaders. I think I didn't know what to expect. Um it all happened. Did you have to ring the other TDs and say, will you back me? Or We all actually took the weekend to think about it, mm-hmm. you know. Like we obviously Catherine and Roisin made their announcement on Wednesday, but like we heard on Tuesday. And we all took the weekend to think about it. And when we met on Sunday, I talked, you know, to my family, to my team and thought about it a lot. Um and I said to the parliamentary party that I, I I wanted to go for it, that I felt I could reach those people that we needed mm-hmm. to reach who, like me, not that long ago, might not have an interest in politics, might not see themselves as somebody who politics feels or hears. And I thought that I was in a good position to reach them. And I put that to the parliamentary party and it all happened really quickly then. Yeah, they did. And me. people started to, to rule themselves out really quickly. Gary Gannon did it here on the programme with us. And, and so your role happened by default, if you like. Would you have preferred there to be a, a competition? I think competition is good and healthy in politics and 
um, you know, I was kind of gearing myself up for another election. Um, but look, that's the way that it, it unfolded. So you were prepared to go to go to battle for the job if you needed to? Yes. And um, Brendan Howland was on the programme a little bit earlier on. I asked him about your comments around Labour, very definitive instant no when you were asked about a merger. And he said that comments like that only serve the right. What do you say? I don't know what Brendan means. I mean, I'm not trying to promote the right. And look, I think for the Social Democrats and for the Labour Party, we're really sick of being asked about it. And it's not like I was bringing it up and trying to talk about how we're not going to merge with the Labour Party. It's mm-hmm. that I was asked and I, I said that, you know, I'm very ambitious about the future of the Social Democrats. And what, what that is doesn't your, include a merger what, with what Labour. What is your issue with another party of the left? You, one that you have common ground with from a policy perspective. It's not that I have a particular issue with the Labour Party. It's that I don't plan to merge with the Labour Party. Um, I don't plan to merge with any party. That's mm-hmm. simply it. But we're asked an awful lot about well, the Labour Party. Well, let's, let's look at your, your numbers because you're sitting at around 4% mm. in recent polls, basically yeah. staying static. We had Professor Gary Murphy in the studio yesterday and he said, look, it's going to be a challenge to hold on to the six seats that you have in the doll." It's a fairly precarious position to then rule out a merger with a party of the left, which would give you strength. And I suppose the question is, what do you want to achieve? Is it, because if you want to be a party of government, mm. you have to be looking for numbers. Claire, I think that one of the most important commodities in politics is trust. And let's face it, Irish politicians are not up on the top of the trust list for most people. And I do think that trust was broken between the general public and the Labour Party when they went into that government in 2011. And I'm trying to earn people's trust and build on that and build a party that is based on honest politics. I have no interest in merging with any other party. That's not a particular attack on the Labour Party in the slightest. That's mm-hmm. just who I'm asked Well, about. you just said that they've broken people's trust, so that's as close to an attack as, as you have can Fianna get. As have Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't think they're unique in that. It's just, I don't want it to, it almost sounds there like I'm out to get the Labour Party. Not at all. I'm just always asked about it. And Claire asked Holly about going into coalition with the Labour Party. Yeah, I could. I would absolutely speak to any party about going into government and of course it would be more compatible with parties on the left. Mm-hmm. And what um, about, about Fine Gael then? It's very difficult to imagine a kind of agreement in terms of programme for government with Fine Gael because I suppose we're you know, a left of centre party. We believe that there's intervention from the state necessary where the private market is failing. And Fine Gael's policy is obviously further to the right of centre in terms of leaving things up to the private market and privatisation. So, so now you can already we're less compatible. But you're still willing to talk to them. So now you can see yeah. why Labour made the decision that they did in 2011 because they felt that they could temper uh, those inclinations of Fine Gael at that time. I mean, do you accept that they went in with good intentions? I absolutely actually do. I think that most individuals... You may be in the same position yourself. I think that though, what we need to remember and what people were... I think what eroded the trust for people was it's not like they went into government in 2011 and didn't know what the climate was. It was a very difficult time and I do recognise mm-hmm. that. But you don't go in with promises and break those promises. Would you not say, here's what is possible to achieve, here is what isn't possible to achieve? And then you balance that with everything else and decide whether you want to do it or not. You don't promise things and then directly break those promises. Okay. And also, I think, Claire, as well, there's 
I do want to explain that obviously for people listening and it's not that long ago that I didn't know too much and I think, oh, what's the difference between those left wing parties? I understand that. And for me, the difference and the reason I joined the Social Democrats and I wouldn't be a TD if they didn't exist. That's another difference between us. I wouldn't have gone and stood and run for another political party. It's the way that you do things. So policies might sound similar, but there's different priorities within those things. So, for example, in the Social Democrats alternative budget, we had a cost of disability payment directly in that budget that is costed. No other party had that. Mm -hmm. There's different priorities and there's different ways of doing things. And that has a profound impact, I think, on how you govern. The Labour Party um, responded to what you said yesterday about the, the potential merger and when you knocked it on the head. And the journalist Louise Byrne um, from The Mirror said that when the Labour Party was asked what the difference is between the SOC Dems and the Labour Party, a spokesperson said the Labour Party was founded by James Connolly. The Social Democrats were founded by Stephen Donnelly. <laughs> what, do you, what do you make of that? Well, I wonder why a spokesperson's going out with remarks like that. But look, I'd rather have be in a party that has abandoned Stephen Donnelly than a party that's abandoned the principles of James Connolly. I don't know why they're making a comparison between Did those Stephen two Donnelly things. Not abandoned, rhymes? abandoned I mean, the social democrats? It seems like they're, that worked. I think it seems like they're kind of scraping the barrel for something to say about this situation. But look, I do think it's equally kind of confusing and annoying for the Labour mm-hmm. Party as well. Both of us are constantly asked about this okay. and we have no intention of merging. Okay, so so uh, People Before Profit then, they sent out a letter to yourselves, to Sinn Féin, other parties mm-hmm. of the left, not the Labour Party, uh, mm-hmm. wanting to have a conversation about a coalition after the next election. Are you going to be party to that conversation? Um, I haven't read the text of that, that letter yet. Um, yesterday was such a busy day, um, but I will absolutely get to reading it. And like I said, we'd be open to talking to all parties and we'd especially like to see a, a left-wing government. Mm-hmm. So of course we talk to any party. Led by Sinn Féin, you'd be happy to take part in that, would you? We'd have to go into those programme for government talks. And this isn't, I know that politicians come on the radio and they don't answer questions like this. I'm not trying to avoid the question. It would depend on the critical mass and impact we could have on government. And, you know, with Sinn Féin, we'd have concerns around climate action. We'd have to ensure that things like that were you know, set in stone in a programme for government. And it's really difficult to predict that because my job now as the leader of the Social Democrats is to really try and build on the foundations that have been laid by Roisin and Catherine. And that means finding uh, more people on the ground, to get out, to knock on doors, more candidates, more people to vote, all of those things. So what we want to do is build on that and obviously try and increase our critical mass to go into government. We want to go into government, but we will not be going into government for the sake of it, to make up the numbers when we won't have an impact. We want to get our policies implemented. Yeah. So we need and, to build our numbers to, to allow that to happen. And Claire asked Holly about young women in politics and abuse. A lot has been made about your age and this generational change and you want to get new and younger people involved in politics. Mm. That is a very tall order because it is not an attractive profession for young people, particularly for young women. And you've been very vocal on the abuse that, that female politicians get. It's difficult to... Uh, tell people this is a nice place to be, isn't it? It is. I don't underestimate the challenge that is ahead of us at all. Uh, But I do know that there's a lot of people out there who would like something different, who would like a change and maybe don't see themselves as a person who would go for it. And I remember being at a a UCC politics event when I was on Cork County Council and it was the female um, elected members in Cork there and it was so interesting that the people were asking how did we get involved in politics all of us mm-hmm. almost all of the and this is a, obviously a small snapshot but had to be asked and asked again and I think observationally there's a difference for women getting involved in politics yeah, but Didn't you say had you known about the level of vitriol directed at female politicians that you might have thought twice about entering 
politics in the first place. Yes, but I followed that with, I almost forget saying that because it was taken in, in out of context, said f- following that, I'm glad I didn't know because I don't regret this for a minute. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've been asked, like, did, did you consider this in terms of going for the leadership? I did consider it. It is a consideration, but I wouldn't let it stop me. And I wouldn't encourage anybody else to let it stop them. But I do think it's important that we're honest with people about what it's like and that we say we're trying to address this. And we are. Yes. And so in your considerations, when you were thinking about the abuse now, that's probably going to be heightened because you're, I mean, this is just fact, isn't it? This is the way life has gone. Did you consider how you would deal with what's coming down the tracks in terms of in particular online abuse? Um, I mean, with online abuse, you can not look at it. It's a a good method. Like we need to recognise as well the people who kind of level that kind of abuse at female politicians are normally faceless, nameless, mm-hmm. emailless Twitter accounts. You know, I don't want to give them too much heed. I don't want to dismiss the impact that it has on people either. But, you know, I think the best thing to do is take the measures that you have to take in terms of things like security and bits like that and then try not to let it impact on the kind of change you need. Because the only way I think to address this particular type of abuse that female politicians get is to get more women into politics. So stepping out or not stepping into the other roles is not the solution. Now, you have welcomed the establishment of a Citizens' Assembly on drug use and I know you have a personal interest uh, in this. You've spoken before about your brother uh, and who you have said publicly died of a drug overdose. Do you think that we need to change how we address the drug issue in this country given that you have a fairly unique understanding of what's going on? I really do think we need to change it and... You know, we have more deaths from overdoses in Ireland than we do from, for example, road traffic accidents. I think we've got the highest, third highest rate in Europe of drug overdose deaths. Um, and for, I suppose speaking from a family who's who's lost somebody, um, there's a lot of families in Ireland who've gone through that. And I remember actually after um, Sam passed away, people saying to me, it was just after the local election. And I remember a lot of people saying to me, there's nothing to be ashamed of. And I was quite taken aback by that because I didn't feel any shame. I felt sad. Mm -hmm. And it made me realise the attitude that people have towards this situation, that they were worried that I would feel ashamed more than nearly anything else in that moment. And I suppose it just really highlighted to me that like that shame and secrecy and all of those things doesn't help people who are perhaps struggling with addiction because you can't then go and maybe get help openly and honestly, you should feel shame instead. Mm -hmm. And so I think it highlights the approach that we take in Ireland, this kind of criminalising it rather than taking a health-led approach, I don't think is working for us. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's helping people who need it. And there's a lot of kind of suffering as a result of that. And I'm really glad that we now will have a Citizens' Assembly to look at the other models because other countries do take a health-led approach. And I'm no expert on this, but from what I've read there is a reduction in deaths and serious harm. So that's something we need to look at. And it's a shame, you know, there's three citizen assemblies in this programme for government. The Dublin mayor was prioritised ahead of the Citizen Assembly on Drugs. And I think that's really important. But we're talking about deaths almost every day. So it should have been prioritised more. And it's always kicked down the road. The can is kicked down the road. And yeah, just it, I'm, I'm glad it's happened now, but, it, you know. Did your brother's situation and his death influence your decision at all to enter politics? Because you said it coincided with the local elections. Was that your first your first time to run that local election? Is that the one that you mean? It, it, he passed away, I think it was six weeks after the local election. Mm-hmm. So, so you no. were all, you were all, you'd already made your decision. Yeah. 
yeah, it was a, in between the two elections. Mm-hmm. But but clearly his situation was was going on at the time when you were making your decision about what you would do with your own life. Did it have any influence on you at all? No, unfortunately, I wasn't aware you didn't of know. the situation that he was in. No, mm-hmm. um, so it didn't have an impact. But I think like everyone, different experiences in your life can open your mind or your heart to a particular issue. And of course, then when you're in politics, it drives you to try and change that at a national level. I mean, we can't bring Sam back, but you can try and help other families from from experiencing what we did. Holly Kearns, leader of the Social Democrats from Today with Claire Byrne. And after several days talking about addiction, the subject of advertising alcohol began the afternoon's live line. A number of people mentioned uh, over the last few days when we were talking about alcohol, we began talking about illicit drugs, by the way, in the Citizens' Assembly. That was last Monday. But I moved very quickly on to alcohol and a number of people pointed out to us today that there's a new billboard campaign, which means everyone can see it 24-7. It's all around the country, massive billboards. Jemison, Ginger and Lime, this St. Patrick's Day or any day. Uh, Professor Frank Murray is a consultant in haematology and gastroenterology and he contacted Jesse. Frank, um, what do you think of this new advertising campaign? I think it's the first time... Uh, a hard liquor has been associated with our national holiday so directly? Um, well, I think it's, it's, it, th- there's a lot to criticise in it on a number of fronts. One is that exact point there, Joe. And another is the idea that you should be drinking alcohol every day, which is a, a really, we know, and you, from your show yesterday where there were, there were such, um, uh, such sad stories put forward by both people who drink and by the families of those who died as a result of mm-hmm. liver failure to alcohol. That, that, that ad is sending out a, a very poor message to me. Do you think it should be withdrawn? Uh, do you know, I, 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 think that, so I, I think that there should be no advertising of alcohol products at all. So that would be my own view but about The fact it. is, this is a campaign directly linking it to St. Patrick's Day. Yeah, yeah. I think, do you know, I think it is, I think it is very bad. Um, and I, I, I don't think we should be doing that. I think that we should be, but, you know, it's the tip of an iceberg, Joe. We have, we, mm. we live in a, a country where we're absolutely overwhelmed by marketing and promotion of alcohol. You can see it even, we're not supposed to, even at the rugby, um, um, at, at the Aviva, where there's supposed to be no advertising of alcohol products on the pitch. There's gear, Guinness in big bright letters and a mm. faint zero zero. It's, that's all very wrong. It, it, children know more about alcohol brands than they do about most other brands because the marketing is so pervasive. So I do think that you know this ad, this is is an ad is, is a tip of that iceberg, and I personally think we shouldn't have um, alcohol advertising at all. But that's 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 a little bit of a step down the road, I think. But well, it's such a big business. Newspapers, uh, RTE, yeah. broadcasters depend on alcohol. Now I know there there are further restrictions on whiskey advertising, hard liquor, so to speak. But um, this this is an this is an ad. Uh, we've we've asked Irish distillers or Perna Ricard who own them now. Uh, many billboards are are uh, in use for this St. Patrick's Day campaign. But uh, whatever about alcohol ads on, for beer or whatever on radio and te- well, television don't exist on RT radio as such. They do exist on other radio stations. Um, th- there is a watershed. A billboard is can be beside a school, can be beside a hospital, can be beside a... Um, and they're, yep. they're, they're visible now because of lighting and backlighting 24-7. Yeah, no, I, I think, you know, Joe, honestly, we, we, there is a lot of evidence that advertising uh, encourages people to drink 
um, at an earlier age and to be more likely to be problem drinkers. That's on the one hand. And on the other hand, and you had a, a, a man, Frank, on your programme yesterday who's been abstinent for many years. He talked about going to AA. And people, for instance, who are in recovery are you know, exposed to those ads all the time which threaten their recovery and threaten their abstinence from alcohol. So, do you know, I think I'm, I personally, having worked in the world of many patients dying from very difficult death from mm. liver failure, the impact it had on them and on their families, I feel no sympathy for the alcohol industry, and I feel particularly no sympathy for their marketing and promotions. And if I can just follow that up, Joe, and say, if you look at the WHO best buys in terms of reducing alcohol harms, they are mainly around price and promotion, Mm-hmm. Uh, price, price, I beg your pardon, price, availability, and marketing and advertising and promotion. So we know that measures in relation to marketing and advertising are very effective in reducing alcohol consumption. Professor Frank Murray there, then Dr. Sheila Gilhini, CEO of Alcohol Action Ireland. Talk to Joe. Are you aware of this advertising campaign, the St. Patrick's Day whiskey campaign by Jamison? Yes, I have seen it. And uh, yet again, you know, we have been pointing to this, um, you know, the problems around the marketing of alcohol. And as your your previous caller, um, Professor Murray, has just been saying, the marketing of alcohol is one of the key drivers of alcohol use in Ireland. And this is marketing that we know from research is targeted towards young people and also to heavy drinkers, so it's, you know, particularly ir- irresponsible. But I think the thing that we are really keen to point out here is that this sort of marketing, which really appeals to you know things that are important to us, whether we're talking about national identity, whether we're talking about sport or music or friendship or family, mm. all of that kind of marketing is really forbidden under the Public Health Alcohol Act. Um, a set of legislation, a set of measures that was passed in 2018, but has never yet actually been uh, implemented. So when we talk about any particular ad, as, as this particular one that, that we're, we're discussing here, mm. it's not about any one ad. It's the bigger question is, why have these um, controls, these statutory controls, not been implemented? And we need to be asking the Minister for, for Health this direct question. Uh, alcohol, or whiskey advertising is banned on uh, state television here. Now, that doesn't, that means they can advertise on the various cable channels or, or platforms that, that come in. But whiskey is seen as different because, as I say, it is, it is, um, it, it is banned on, uh, by the state on, t- on television. But the fact that the, this whiskey campaign is on billboards, which everyone can see, and two, is linked directly, the word St. Patrick's Day, Jemison, this St. Patrick's Day or any day. So St. Patrick's Day is obviously linked to it in a fortnight's time. Um Deep, like, is there apart from you or anyone else calling? But first of all, what do what do Alcohol Action Ireland think of this campaign, the St Patrick's Day campaign? I know Frank is saying it's all campaigns, but this campaign specifically targets St Patrick's Day and whiskey drinking. Yeah. So what we know is that, uh, and I agree completely with Frank uh, on this. All of this type of advertisement, it appeals to the emotions that, that are within us. They appeal to, the, you know, as I say, things like national identity, things that are really, really important. Uh, so I'm not interested in any one particular ad. I'm interested mm-hmm. in why we don't have these statutory controls. Well, why don't, why don't we, Sheila? Are they on the... <laughs> Well, why aren't we asking the Minister for Health this exact question? Because this is, 
this is legislation that was passed in 2018. All that is required is for it to be, uh, you know, brought in, to be to be implemented, to be to to, to uh, for, for the minister to sign it actually in, into law. And there's several things actually that that are still outstanding from that okay. act. For example, the broadcast watershed, you know, which you just had mentioned earlier on, we're not supposed to be seeing alcohol advertisements before uh, 9 p.m. on on broadcast um, media on on TV and radio, mm. but we are seeing them. Uh, and the reason that we're still seeing them is that this particular section of the Act has not yet been implemented. And we have asked the Minister many times, and this has been, there's been PQs asked about this, and we constantly get back a message of, oh, there's a need for consultation with the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland. But four years of consultation, I mean, come on, that's <laughs> just not, it's not, uh, not credible, is really what we would be saying here. But people say, what's the harm? Like alcohol, I know, I know there's two schools of art, but there is a middle school as well saying, like, a lot of people drink alcohol in moderation. It is a great uh, leavener. It's great social. Uh, and, and a lot of people like the taste of it as well. Vintage wines or types of beer or whatever. Um, so how do you... How do you which I suspect might be quite easy, really. But Sheila, how do you answer the argument you're just a killjoy? You know, we are looking at a, at a substance here that is no ordinary product. It's not the same as buying, you know, a, a litre of milk. It is a completely different product and it needs to be subject to a different type of regulation. And we know this when we look at other um, substances that are mood-altering, mind-altering, mm. that are addictive, that we have a completely different set of regimes uh, around this. So, for example, tobacco and the sale of, of uh, you know, cigarettes, we have a complete ban on the, the marketing of a substance that we know to be harmful and to be, uh, you know, very addictive. Mm-hmm. And we recognise that and, and there, is, there is a ban on it. Now, you can still buy it. There's nobody saying that you can't actually buy the product. But there is controls are around it. So, you know, you have to be a certain age before you can buy it. You ha- it's not um, it's it's not advertised. And, you know, the, there are high prices associated with it. So exactly as Frank was saying earlier, there are these levers that we know from from really, really good research that actually do work. So it's not a case of being a killjoy. It's a case of actually just taking a step back and looking at mm. this product. And when you strip out the advertising and the marketing myths that go along with it, I think you're better able to see the product for what it is, a product that causes an immense amount of harm. And, you know, anybody who would have been listening to your callers yesterday could be in no doubt of the the trauma that is being experienced mm. by families up and down the country. Dr Sheila Gilhini, CEO of Alcohol Action Ireland from Liveline with Joe Duffy. And on today with Claire Byrne, more about those leaked WhatsApp messages from former Minister for Health in the UK, Matt Hancock, and the ghostwriter who's come back to haunt him. This story across the way in The Telegraph about the former UK Health Secretary Matt Hancock's handling of the COVID crisis is rumbling on. The journalist Isabel Oakshot, who's working was working with Hancock on his Pandemic Diaries book, she says it's ridiculous for the politician to claim there's no public interest in his private WhatsApp messages. She leaked all those messages 
to the Telegraph. He says that's a breach of trust. He's apologised to his colleagues whose correspondence with him has also been leaked. Kevin Maguire is Associate Editor with the Daily Mirror and is on the line. Just before we chat, Kevin, I want to play this clip because the journalist at the heart of the story, Isabel Oakshot, as I was saying, spoke to Nick Robinson on BBC Radio 4 this morning on her decision to break a non-disclosure agreement and release these WhatsApp messages. Let's hear some of that exchange now. Why write a partial and selective account of COVID with Matt Hancock uh, and then breach his confidence, break a non-disclosure agreement and write an account that contradicts the account that you wrote in the first place? Well, first of all, the account that I helped him write is his account. Uh, I fully discharged my responsibilities to Matt Hancock. Together, we produced a book that made a fantastic impact. It was a book that he wanted. I didn't leave anything out. responsibilities. You actually broke a written legal agreement, a non-disclosure agreement, not to reveal the contents. my, My responsibilities, having finished that book with him, are now to the public interest. This is about the millions of people, every one of us in this country, that were adversely affected by the catastrophic decisions to lock down this country repeatedly, often on the flimsiest of evidence for political and reasons. Yet you helped Matt Hancock write a book justifying uh, all why, those very why? decisions. Why? Because I wanted to get to the yeah. truth of it. Well, you, yes, quite but you're now telling us you didn't quite get Quite successful the truth of it as it turned out. Well, in it that did, book. didn't I? Right. Isabel Oakshot there, who leaked all of these messages, speaking to the BBC's Nick Robinson. As I said, uh, Kevin is on the line. Kevin Maguire. Good morning, Kevin. Good morning. Uh, you saw Isabel Oakshot in action, I think, last night on with uh, Piers Morgan, where he said to her that she torched Matt Hancock. This has turned into a bit of a slanging match, hasn't it, between Hancock and Oakshot? Oh, it certainly has, because Hancock's diaries, uh, the pandemic diaries that... Uh, Oakshot helped write, made very little impact in truth, but certainly the leak of these 100,000 plus WhatsApp messages has. And uh, Hancock's ghostwriter has come back to haunt him. Uh, she can, uh, I think, legitimately argue a public interest, but he can equally legitimately argue a breach of trust after agreements were signed and they, they worked together. But uh, you've also got to ask about his judgment when he picked to ghostwrite his, his book, although she did put her name on it too, but she essentially ghostwrote it, uh, why he picked a journalist who was well known to be opposed to lockdowns, his signature uh, policy, uh, and was unpaid. She wasn't paid. She took no money for writing the book, although I believe there's an agreement she would later share any serialisation rights. So. It mm-hmm. is a real row, and as you say, he's now had to apologise, but it's very embarrassing. And other ministers who were involved are all now braced for whatever conversations they had on WhatsApp with Matt Hancock to appear in the Daily Telegraph, for including us. Rishi Sunak. Kevin Maguire from Today with Claire Byrne. And on Liveline in the afternoon, Anna called Joe about a frightening incident that happened when she brought her children to Bushy Park at the weekend. So we had a, a really terrible and, and frightening accident in Bushy uh, at the weekend with my little six-year-old. Um, I was there with my two sons, they were five and six, and they're learning to ride their bikes. It's a safe park, I thought, to yeah. go to and bring your kids. Um, you know, to, to ride around on their, their little small bikes. Um, and we had just arrived. We parked right at the entrance to the park and myself and Elliot entered the park. He was mm-hmm. cycling in front of me. Now we're talking, you know, we're, we're going pretty slowly. Like we're just coming in the entrance together. 
and out of nowhere an e-scooter came and and hit him wow. at speed um i i just remember screaming like a you know out of nowhere um you know, because it is even talking about it now, it, it was an extremely exciting moment to see your your kid get hit like that at speed. You're not if you're crossing a road, you're expecting a car, you're expecting a motorbike. When you go into a park, you don't expect something coming at you at you know 48 kilometres per hour. You know, and that's what these e-scooters can do. That's the upper speed limit of them. And what what was the, the impact on Elliot? What, what you, you had to go to the hospital, obviously. Yeah, well, I mean, look, in the initial moments afterwards, like, um, I went into total shock. I, I grabbed him, you know, he was lying on the ground, bawling, crying. Couldn't really see, you know, he said he hit my, he hit my head, my eye, my eye, and he was crying. The young man who hit him um, wouldn't accept any responsibility. My husband said to him, you know, it's illegal to be to be on one of those in the park, and he denied that it was and was indignant and, and really kind of brazen his voice at us and at my child. He had shouted at my child, in fact, as he was hitting him, um, so he raced off. He sped off on the on the scooter, and mm-hmm. while my husband was, you know, trying to get Elliot into the car to take him to the hospital, um, I I actually went after the guy to try and get him to come back so we could get his name, but he wouldn't come back. And um, and you've no and at that point, there's, there's no there's no ID on the on the scooter. There's no way. There's no ID. They don't have any way. You know, like if you're seeing a scooter do something on the road, like they don't have a badge like a car, so you can't actually take note of them or anything like that. So I have a photo of the man, but I, that's all I have for the moment. Um, but we had to take Elliot to the hospital immediately. We couldn't get an ambulance yeah. to come quickly enough. Um, and Elliot uh, started to go asleep in the car, which as a parent oh, is absolutely no, no, terrifying. No, no terrifying experience when they had a head injury and um, his eye all swelled up shut and he was you know start initially screaming and crying but then he started to get kind of sleepy and I honestly thought the worst you know I, I was really really frightened and um, so he went to Crumlin they looked after him really well and um, he was there till late at night and um, under observation and sent for a CT scan to make sure that there wasn't any kind of very serious damage um, and then he was sent home with mild concussion and a very, very... He looks like he's been a six-year-old, a few rounds in the ring. He has big, swollen um, and black eye. Um, and and certainly, like, you know, a, a bit traumatised, like like us all. Um, but I suppose that the, the reason I'm talking to you, Joe, yeah, is because yeah. I, I'm so angry that this could happen in a park, that this could happen to a child. And what if this happens next week and the outcome isn't as lucky I suppose yeah, you yeah. know that's Anna on the live line with Joe Duffy and that's it for Playback Daily so mind yourself till next time